0: All of that is overlapping with the publication of Contact as a book, and it's release as a movie. And that's where I would say, like, absolutely, you have to point to this as the way in which public conversation about religion and science is had outside of the academy. And it's only just becoming something that's a quote-unquote proper sort of academic field, producing scholars who study specifically that.
1: You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are...
0: My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College, but I'm in Berkeley today. And the very first film I remember
1: watching is Disney's Sleeping Beauty. I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I don't remember my the first movie that I remember, but I do remember watching The Land Before Time. Um, almost every single day, multiple times a day, for
2: a long time. Uh, My name is Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Science Education at UNC Charlotte. Like Zach, I have a hard time remembering the very first film I ever watched, but I do remember watching Winnie the Pooh a lot.
3: Kendra Holt-Moore, PhD student at Boston University. And the first movie I remember watching is the cartoon version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe.
2: That was a good movie. Okay. Well, uh, this is the first episode of our new mini series focusing on films. Science fiction type films, except Adam threw a monkey wrench in that one. You can explain that at your episode. But we wanted to kind of talk about how films, uh, in particular, focus on or address things like science and religion. And the one that I really wanted to start with is the movie Contact. So, raise of hands. Has everyone seen it? Okay, good. Just for the listener out there, this is, <laughs> we have all seen it. Um, we all raised our hands. We all raised this our is hands. Fabulous radio. It is. It is. <laughs> so, just in case you haven't seen it, uh, general synopsis, real quick. I will not give away any spoilers, although it's been out for like 20 years. So, Contact, more than 20 years, right? Didn't it come out in the 90s?
3: 97, anyway. I think.
2: Yeah, that's it. Thank you. So 23 years. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're listening, you need to go see it because it's an amazing movie. But Contact is a movie uh, starring Jodie Foster um, and Matthew McConaughey. And she is a astronomer, radio astronomer, looking for uh, radio waves uh, to see if she can find, as she says in the film, Little Green Men. And it's based off of a book by the late Carl Sagan. And Matthew McConaughey plays a guy who I believe they call him a pastor or a reverend, but he says earlier in the film that the way he described himself is that he is a man of the cloth without the cloth. I think is what he said, which was his little way, you know, but anyway, um, so, and there seems to be, you know, throughout it, as she discovers the signal that there's a lot of back and forth between what it means scientifically, what it means, to people of faith and religiously. And so it's it's a fascinating film to get into. I don't want to go into too much detail to give away a lot. But one thing I use to describe it in our little document we have here is, at first glance, context seems to support the narrative that science and religion are in conflict. However, a deeper look reveals a more complex relationship between these two worlds. And you can quote that if you want, you can attribute it to me. But Anyway, I've done a lot of research with this film, Contact, and uh, this is kind of how I really I, – it was this film with my research on nature of science. Mark Bloom and I did research on it, and uh, along with our colleague, Kathy. And it was this film that really kind of pushed me further into this discussion of science and religion. Because I thought it was fascinating how, when I really started picking apart the film itself, how science and religion is just – throughout that entire film so that's my general idea of that film rachel had some questions for us that i think can guide us but i just want it to be where we kind of have a general conversation about our thoughts of the film itself and i can pull out discussions of certain clips and things like that but what are your general thoughts when you first saw it and then when you started looking at it you know, watching it again later in life and those types of things and especially those of us who read the book i have not Read the book, and I know it's, there are some differences there.
3: Wait, can I ask a, a different question before we answer this question? Uh, <laughs> because, well, I'm just I'm just curious before we start like talking about our general thoughts on the film. Ian, you said that you had done some research on uh, or like written yes. about contact, yeah. and so I'm just curious, like why it's meaningful to you, like why. Why did you so, choose it? And what, what have yeah. you written about?
2: So what, what uh, uh, Mark, Kathy and I decided to do was, is that we all were researchers on, on nature of science. So what is science and and what scientists do? And we all enjoyed films and we kind of just at one of our conferences said, Hey, you know, I think it'd be really fascinating to look at how science is presented in films and, you know, all of us are kind of been thinking about it separately and decided, well, let, let's go down that road. And we didn't want to approach it with looking at science content because that's pretty much what everyone usually does. We wanted to think about, well, and, and let me back up real quick. When we talk about science content, a lot of times until more recently, the last decade or two that, you know, there's been talk of how bad the science content is in films <laughs> and how, you know, it's just such a bad representation of what science is. And, you know, of how scientists do their work. And it's just so inaccurate. And how, but people, when they watch films or television or some, anything like that, that kind of medium, they, they think that's where they get their ideas from. That's where they get their information from in some situations. Mm-hmm. And so we felt like, well, how could we take these popular science fiction films and use them as an educational tool to teach about the nature of science and the work of scientists? So instead of just focusing on the negatives, let's see, could we focus on the positive too? And that was a particular film, Contact is one of the films that we just all really enjoyed watching as as we grew up. And so we felt like there's a lot to that film that we could really get into outside of the content. And so it just was fascinating. You know, we first just started watching it and then realizing that, you know, obviously knowing that the supposed conflict between science and religion was present throughout the film. But then when we really started digging in and watching it with a, you know, kind of picking it apart, well, I must've watched it over a hundred times during that process. We started kind of developing what we refer to as a fingerprint on wherever we could find any kind of representation of nature of science or scientific inquiry in a particular film. And that was the first one we did that one and twister. Um, (laughs) we also did, uh, Jurassic Park uh, Gorillas in the Mist we talked about doing Contagion which could be a really cool film to talk about by the way based on what's going on right now Um, (laughs) we have different definitions of cool too soon too soon oh yeah too soon (laughs) Um, but anyway it just it was such a fascinating take on how to approach using films in a positive way in an educational setting and go ahead
3: well, I, was, I was gonna ask uh, more particularly what what were a couple of the conclusions that you came to about contact or like were were there a couple of examples that you discussed
2: for yeah so um what we were trying to do is to see could we recommend this you know particular films to address certain things and so one of the things we felt like with contact was it would be a, it was a potentially a really good strategy to take a to, to address the social and cultural aspects of science, which includes things like ethics, science, and religion, so society type, and, and the influence of society on scientific inquiry. And that film just was, I mean, it's everywhere throughout that particular film. And there are other things too. You know, another big one is about the importance of evidence in science. And so there were, you know, what we were promoting, and we never did. Research where we actually would show, or at least we've not written about this yet, and we kind of moved away from it. But research where we would show clips and see what is the impact of the clips on people's understandings of science. You know, we've got some data, but have not looked at it in a while.
3: Which clips did you use?
2: So, well, I'm glad you asked. One of the <laughs> first ones we loved... uh was near the beginning of the film or maybe 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 a third of the way in or a quarter of the way in when she first detects the signal. When Ellie Arroway, Jodie Foster's character, first detects the signal and she's laying on the hood of her car out in uh, Arizona, I believe. And so that was really fascinating to be able to show the enthusiasm and excitement that scientists go through. Uh, and then also just talking about their general work. Right. So that was in New Mexico. Yeah. So I thought that was really fun because you see even the collaborative aspect of science and of you know how scientists have to work together, especially near the end of it, when they talk about when they realize it's it's coming from Vega. So then they she reaches out to scientists around the world to get them to confirm it. And so we that was a really good clip to be able to showcase that. Even earlier in the film, you know, there's the talk about when she first meets Palmer Joss, Matthew McConaughey's character, and and there you start getting into this discussion about what science, you know, the pursuit of truth within science, and how science and religion kind of try to do that. I see there are other ones when you talk about like like how people's perceptions play into their interpretation of of evidence and the interpretation of of what's going on. You see the part where Ellie is presenting. To people in the White House. And there's different people around the room in the White House. You have you know generals around the room. You've got religious people. Uh, you've got another scientist. You've got the Secretary of Defense. And so she's talking about when they find another signal hidden in there and what the signal means and hmm. the purpose of the machine. And she talks about, she refers to it as the idea of a transport, for example. And the other scientist in the room kind of jumps on her and says, you know, there's no evidence for that. There's no proof. And you could tell when you watch that scene how when she says it that she's very hesitant to say that, that that's definitely her bias coming in. But then when you go, when it goes around the room and, and people give their perspective on what it could mean or what the these blueprints are, it's all of the religious and or the uh, military individuals are talking about being a weapon. Mm. For example, you have the religious person, Rob Lowe's character, talking about, you know, coming from a religious perspective on things. And so it's, that really gets into this whole idea of the subjectivity of science and mm-hmm. also so again back to the social and cultural aspects of science which was really cool yeah i don't want
1: to get too far afield but arrival does the same thing i love is, that film um maybe my favorite movie but we're not going to talk about it because i have i'm talking about interstellar instead which is my second oh, favorite movie um, but in in Arrival, there's a similar kind of deal where the, there's these aliens and they just show up, and they're trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to communicate with them. And you've got this uh, linguist who's using various strategies that she knows. And then we learned that uh, is it the the Chinese or the Russians were using chess to com- to to teach yeah. language. So they were using the games to teach language, which meant that inherently their words were going to be different. Like
0: Mm
1: -hmm. they were talking in terms of weapons and war and competitions and winners and losers because they were teaching through game as opposed to teaching uh, the way that she was. But that's, I I think, uh, contacted that too pretty well. Yeah. Uh, That you bring your bias to how Mm -hmm. you're going to interpret this. And that's her big problem with religion in the first place. Yeah. Is that she says this, a whole bunch of times throughout the book and the movie that if there really is a god and if that god is really so great and that god really wants to communicate truth to people the god who has who created all of this why would that god choose to do so through ancient stories and poems and mm. I, like religious traditions and things that are just so easily misinterpreted and morphed and changed and it it really it doesn't seem like something that a god who created the universe would do that wouldn't the god of the universe put encode something into the very fabric of the universe that could be interpreted by everyone in the same way that these aliens were doing in their signal that they, mm-hmm. they sent their signal, and in that signal, there were little markers of prime numbers, and those prime numbers stood out to somebody who knew what they were looking for. And then they could use those, and they found other markers of these prime numbers, and that anyone who had a basic understanding of math, any any society that had a basic understanding of math could, could find these and then could extrapolate from them. And she kept saying, like, well, if there's an alien race who knows that this is how you communicate with people, then... How much more so should God be able to do this? And this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that the first thing that they pick up, when they figure out that it's a code and there's another thing in there, it's a video of Hitler <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. starting at <laughs> the, all
1: the, the Berlin Olympics. Right. And all the people are like, "This is a hoax. This is, ah, this is ridiculous with the Hitler. And uh, it turns out that it's because that was the first signal that was strong enough. The, of, of that Olympic Games that was strong enough to leave the atmosphere. And so that mm-hmm. was the first signal that they picked up. And so the first thing that aliens saw of us was Hitler. And they had no idea who he was. right? Because that's
2: just, he's just a guy talking.
1: And <laughs> yep, it was their but way of what, saying that we see you.
2: Mentioning that, again, it was fascinating. Because in the film, right when that happens, you see the Secretary of Defense bring in the soldiers again with their weapons after ellie had said mm-hmm. please leave and then you goes straight to the white house and you see the white house in inter- reference to it is that you know this guy killed millions of people why is he a- our mm-hmm. spokesperson to aliens and the scientists have to quickly say his political leanings and all of the atrocities that happened because of hitler they don't know any of that this is just their hey we heard you Type but it's so fascinating to get into this again that you're our biases and how they come into play. Adam, you look like you wanted to say something.
0: No, no, I was thinking... Hmm. I I feel like Contact has changed for me like when I saw it in 97 I felt so good about it and it was great
2: (laughs) and I really loved it and now Is that when you were more optimistic about everything? I I think so probably (laughs) (laughs) realistically
0: that's probably what changed but now I feel like it's really sinister and dark
1: Ooh Oh, okay, do tell. This so, was pre-9-11 and back yeah. in the good old days, right?
2: Yeah. The well, world was simpler. Everyone was happy, go lucky.
0: <laughs> Everything was good. <laughs> we all were like hoping that we'd find aliens, and be okay. Yeah, right. But there's the, um, there's the um there's <laughs> the there's the the um the billionaire character, right? He is that is R. Uh, Haddon. R Haddon, right? Like now I can't watch that movie without just thinking about why R. Haddon controls everything that's going on. S.R. Hadden. yes, S.R. Hadden. And it makes me really sad. That he controlled things? Yeah, right? And also, if this is the representation of science, that makes me really nervous and sad also. Hmm. Right? I mean, there's, this, there's this question of, like, not only, like, how questions get asked and this interesting relationship going on between science and religion, but in the background of all of it is a sort of subtext of economics. You guys don't matter. This billionaire will decide what it is that happens. Seemingly much like our so many things today. Sorry, I'll just leave it alone. Everything.
1: I can't, Everything. can't, I can't Everything.
0: go too down that rabbit hole.
1: You want to have a series about, about capitalism sometime? And, yeah, uh, clearly, clearly that is yeah. where
0: I am. Heaven.
3: That's a great uh, point, though. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You can go down that rabbit hole.
0: So, I, I mean, like, so I, I still. Or that love the movie, wormhole?
1: pay right? um, yeah. hey, your toll first. But, oh, um, go on.
0: <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I still do, like, I, I really, I do really love the movie. And I, I like Zach's question, because I, or, or the way that Zach is sort of, I think, framing a question that Ellie asks in the movie, which is, a, I think, a totally reasonable question. If God is really all of these things that we say God is, this is a really stupid, sorry, Zach's kids may be listening in the car, so I'll clean myself up.
2: You know what? They got to um, learn it someday, right? <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> I've already so, had to censor you once, Adam. Right. I mean, that's a that's
0: a really poor way to like choose to communicate, one could argue, as she does, I think, quite effectively. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what's interesting to me, right, also knowing like the book was written by Carl Sagan, right? I think there's a part of that that's supposed to be like a mic drop, right? Like, oh, religious people, you got nothing on this. And yet, and I'm not quite sure that's totally fair. I I feel like there are good, you know, theological religious thinkers who have responded to those sorts of issues. And yet, in popular reception, right, I I think Ellie's argument still carries a lot of weight.
1: Well, and, and Carl Sagan responds to it. That, that I, I think we're, we're somewhat unfair to Sagan. I, I think we tend to read him and see him in light of a more recent um, militant atheism, atheism that yeah. he wasn't that. And, and, oh, if, oh, yeah. and I came at this book, I, I read the book before I saw the movie, and I came at it imagining that Sagan was more like Dawkins. And oh, no. I yeah, was imagining no, that it was going to be like when I first met Ellie in in the book, and and she's like, uh, she's making these big questions, and and I'm like, yeah, you know, she's got some good points. But as as it goes on, we we kind of get a lot more sympathetic to to her and to uh, the the sort of experiential aspects of of truth telling um, and how to communicate things that are beyond common understanding and how. Probably can I can I talk about the end? Is is it okay to jump around like
2: that? That's one of the clips I want to address in a minute.
1: Yeah, well, because near the end, when they're getting ready to go through this this portal, that they don't know where they're going to go and what what's going to happen, and right, they've got that big spinning thing, and then they drop it through, and then it's supposed to maybe open up some wormhole and go some intergalactic whatever, and she says. Um, and I have, I have a quote here were this is, she's, she's there, she's up there talking with the aliens and she's on her way home. And she says, here were beings who live in the sky, beings, enormously knowledgeable and powerful who could clearly visit reward and punishment, life and death on the puny inhabitants of earth. Now, how is this different? She asked herself from the old time religion. The answer occurred to her instantly. It was a matter of evidence. There would be five independent, mutually corroborative stories supported by compelling physical evidence. And she was going to come home, and they were going to have the recorders of her conversations, and there were going to be all the data and all of the five different stories. And they get home, and they find out that from the perspective of the onlookers, they hadn't gone anywhere. And that the instruments they had were not able to pick up the travel that they had done. You know, all... the bits of time dilation and relativity and all of that good stuff. And so to everyone else, it seemed like it didn't work. And so then she realized that all she had was her own story Mm -hmm. and the story of the other people who went with her. And if she were to tell that story that she would be, she would lose all credibility. And so they all kind of had to come up with a story about how it didn't work. But then secretly disseminate this true story of what did happen and realizing like, oh man, this is, this is kind of exactly what, what was going on. If this, then her, um, her preacher friend, you know, was comparing it to Jesus and the disciples and uh, that this is exactly how, how we tell stories and how we communicate truth. And it's, yep. I wasn't expecting that I think because I was expecting him to be more militant and like they would come back and prove that God is an alien all along and that religion is ridiculous. And now we have evidence and we have math and science and we can explain away all the things and we don't need this silly old time religion. And in the end of it, it, it ended up coming down to this transcendental experience and storytelling to try to help people who didn't experience it to understand the experience that she had.
2: Well, and I think too, you, you know, you talk about, There, you know, there are a lot of instances from the film where that really stand out about like her pushing back on any idea of religious, you know, implications and religious messaging in there and how her passion for the science and her bias against religion really comes out. But that in some sometimes in certain ways that maybe aren't always remembered that Palmer, um, Matthew McConaughey's character does a great job of pushing back on her you know like for example the first time they're talking about what it means when she's going over the schematics and she talks about you know when rob lowe's character says something along the lines of you know we don't even know if this person believes in god and she's she talks about if this has been religious in nature it would have been a voice from this a big booming voice from the sky or burning bush or vice versa and he had Palmer Voss had just walked in and he said, but a voice from the sky is exactly what you heard, right? So he's kind of pointing, pushing back a little bit on that bias of hers. And then uh, a scene soon after that, they're on a balcony at some party. And while there, she kind of confronts him on something his the character said earlier in the film. And as a way to kind of push back, he talks about, she keeps talking about the importance of evidence. And that's kind of a thing throughout her her lens throughout this whole thing is that she relies on evidence. As a scientist, she has to have evidence, which is fine, right? That's how science works. And and so it's she's approaching it from a, if you don't have evidence, it's not worthwhile. And when he says to her, when she kind of talks about that on that balcony, he says, did you love your father as a way to push back? And she says, well, yeah. And he says, prove it. And she can't really prove it. She fumbles. So he's. I like the subtleness there of trying to push back on that. This is the worldview that we have to accept, which I think even to now can, is very relatable. So don't you get all pessimistic about my movie, man.
0: I, I can't help it. It's just my nature.
2: I, uh, <laughs> so
0: yes, to all of those things, right. Which I'm, <laughs> which I'm deeply in favor of. I, 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 uh, one, right. I, I will like step back and say, the book was what, 85, I think. And the movie is 97, right? Mm-hmm. These are different times. And the, the idea of like a conversation between theology and science or religion and science is really still pretty brand new at that point. I mean, I think that's the other thing to sort of, that I, I try to remind myself every time I go back and like look at these, there's not a generation of scholars, two generations of scholars, who have done a lot of work, Sagan is, is venturing into unknown territory and, and in a certain sense, just trying to keep the peace. Hmm. Right. <clears throat> right. So bearing that in mind, yes, I'm, I'm 100% in favor of these sort of like moments where, and I'll say this too, before I throw my, my dig in, I'm appreciative that Joss isn't like a bumbling buffoon. <laughs> which would totally have been a way to write that character.
2: Almost like Rob Lowe's character.
0: Indeed. So like what, and, and what I appreciate about that is like, so I've been reading a lot of Christopher Stendhal lately. I don't know. I've just been on a kick. And right when he talks about interfaith dialogue, right, he, he makes this big point about like, you never put your best against their worst. And what I appreciate about like the way contact is set up is that it, it doesn't mm-hmm. fall into that problem right? Mm-hmm. Here's my best version of an evidence-based scientist. Here's my best version of a nuanced religious person having this conversation.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that in and of itself was totally novel and really, really important. And yet, does religion have any place left for it besides morality? And does here's the other question. Does have, have
3: any place left for what? Like, does,
0: it, does it do anything yeah. besides morality? And the way that it sort of gets portrayed. So I think that's that's question one. And then question two is, this is the book versus movie question, which I don't know if we want to go there, but the book ends differently. Oh, yeah. Really, really differently. Really Can differently. Can you say
3: what the ending is? I've not read the book. Okay, so
0: in the end of the book, yeah, right, Zach, you correct me if I am misremembering this, right? In the end of I the book. I have it in front
1: of me, yeah. Um, I don't
0: to find my- <laughs> Ellie goes... Um, And and basically, like, I'm going to put it in the way that I would describe it, right? goes on this, like, research project bender looking for evidence of this extraterrestrial intelligence in the far, 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 far digits of pi.
1: Yes-ish. So the final chapter is called The Artist's Signature. And while she was interacting with the alien who looked like her father that alien in told her that there were parts of this whole system of interconnected highways inter- that mm-hmm. their people discovered this they didn't invent this and there are there are le- levels above even even them that there are, are are is an intelligence that predates the universe and encouraged her to investigate the numbers the number pi and so she she takes her supercomputer and she has it looking for patterns in base 11 while she is she's reading a letter that her mother had written her telling her about why she had lied to her about who her true father was and and she's having this really deep inner moment where she's coming to terms with who she is and who her parents were and who what what love is and and humanity and all of that, and her computer is like screaming at her, that it found something and it needs her to come look at it. And what she found is that this deep, deep, deep in the digits of pi, this this series of ones and zeros that if you set out in base eleven, make a circle where it's like zero 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 one, zero 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 there zero, zero, are zero, one, zero, zero, one. And like, if you put it out, it makes a circle of ones with a one in the middle. And so it was, it was right there in the fabric of the universe itself that I don't have the quote in front of me that if you within the math itself of, of a circle is a circle. And what was most amazing about it was not that it was there because in a in pi, you know, you have an infinite amount of numbers. And so theoretically, you could find anything you wanted in there. But what was remarkable about, remarkable about it was how early it was. And it was early enough that if you were looking closely, you would find it, but you wouldn't find it right away. And so when you went looking for truth, truth was there um, saying, hi, I see you. I left a signature here. And that's how it ends. We don't get any explanation of what that means to her or to anything other than there is an intelligence that predates the universe that was able to manipulate the digits of pi and left a little high in there to let yeah. you know that there is something deeper. And it was just this unexpected acknowledgement at the end of the book that I I didn't see coming, that that he would have that little bit of hope in there that... That there might be some evidence-based proof of a a, a transcendental intelligence.
0: it's the evidence-based piece that makes me not hopeful i think that's the piece that actually this is the place where i it's one of the few instances where i like the movie better than the book because there's this recourse at the end of the book to saying like you know what you're having an existential crisis (laughs) don't worry there's evidence to deal with that which is i I, I know that's like a pretty like sad and depressing reading and probably not necessarily what's fully intended But the end of the movie has this sort of like wide open set of possibilities about continuing to search, continuing this Mm -hmm. journey and process that I think codes very differently Hmm. in terms of the relationship between science and religion.
3: Yeah, I think I would uh, agree with Adam's take to some extent and echo some of what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) I can't Um, grasp. what just But happened? I just, I, so to just start, I love this movie and I think it is very inspiring and poetic and beautiful and it's great. But I also, when I have to think about it through the frame of like dialogue between religion and science, I start to like hesitate a little bit about like what, what it means for people, what. The intention of its meaning is supposed to be for people like uh, the director, uh, Robert Zemeckis. Is that how you say his name? Robert Zemeckis? Uh, I think
1: so. That sounds right. Anyway, and
3: I think that it makes me a little bit uncomfortable or it makes me hesitate because I think the question of uh, should we believe in religion or science or is it right to believe in religion uh, and science or do we have to choose one or the other? But the question's about belief and like where we should put our belief. And sometimes there's like compromise for belief in both. And sometimes it's like the two camps, you have to choose one or the other. And I just think after a while, that question and that conversation can feel trite to me. Because it's like religion and religious traditions were not and are not uh, about just believing in things. And neither is right. science. And so I think it just feels like not that interesting to talk, to like use that, the frame of belief and its role in The dialogue or like bridging of religion and science. And so I think that's the main hesitation I have when, like, looking at the ending of the book or the movie, when there's these clear bridges to parallel, uh, like, a, a theological interpretation or a scientific interpretation over the ending where you get this, like, the artist's signature or something that it just, like, it's so. It's so straightforwardly, well, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but like it's, it's so easy to impose on that ending whatever you wish. <laughs> like mm. it can be theological, it can be scientific, it makes everybody happy the end. <laughs> uh, and like there's part of me that really loves that kind of uh, way of storytelling, because I think I am, I don't know because
0: unicorns might run out at any moment and throw up Yeah, glitter.
3: exactly. The unicorns might be out there and we should still <laughs> be searching for them. Um as long no, as but they throw seriously. Glitter. Yeah. I so my point is that I think I feel more comfortable using the word and even this word has its own baggage, but there's a reason that I'm using this word. Faith or faithful. The reason I'm using this word is when I was in my masters I took a class with uh, Brian Stone at Boston University School of Theology on faith and film. And he wrote a book about like different movies and uh, lo- watching those movies through um, the Christian theology, basically. But he has a chapter on contact and has this conversation what?
2: that I what? find. Who was this?
3: Brian Stone. Okay. But he has a chapter on contact that I find compelling because in that chapter he brings up this difference in between the words believe and faith and he talks about belief as this like very mental activity and again like we talk about religious tradition sometimes as only being about belief which is this mental activity that is disconnected from practices and the way that people can practice and be committed to something that they might not actually believe Uh, which feels like a contradiction, but I think that's most often how humans work. And so he describes the characters in the film, or especially like the character of Ellie, as being a faithful character because she has her skepticism, but if you look at what she does, she's committed and loyal or faithful, we might say, to (laughs) the practices of science that throughout the entire film and seems like in the book too Uh, she like people are doubting her and she sometimes doubts herself but she still is trying to like explore and learn more and I think that's that sounded like what you were saying at the end Adam of your last point was um, that there is even in the ending this desire to like expand our knowledge further and that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to a mental commitment, or like a mental belief in something. Uh, it it's more about what you choose to do to like gain knowledge or to you know further the goals of science. And it's not to say that belief is absent or not important, but I just think it's more interesting to talk about the faithfulness of these characters because it reflects more on their actions. And I think whether we're talking about a scientific community or a religious community, I always think it's more interesting to see how, like what are the things they're choosing to do, the commitments, the the faith that they have and what they're doing, because that is, you're doing the things that help uh, make you the kind of person that you think you should be. So I think that's why I have a little bit of hesitation because I I just feel like I'm always trying to figure out how people are interpreting the film because it's so easy to impose different frames onto it and hard to figure out if we have the, like a mutual understanding of its interpretation of like what science means or what religion means.
0: I, I wonder too, right? Like. And this is where I, I do think like when the film came out is really important in terms of like how it gets understood and, and, and the conversation that I feel like we're having about a a strong distinction between faith and belief as like categories that we assume people will know and also will be able to follow us in making that distinction. I'm not sure that's around when contact is first released. Hmm. I mean I think maybe but I feel like it's being developed as like language that can be used in the general public. And and that's a piece that I I would, I would want to like, like I I think the film moves that aspect of the conversation of relating religion and science forward leaps and bounds. Right.
3: And that actually like, given that that's true, that makes me actually more sympathetic, I guess, to, the conversation that the film is trying to propel forward. Because it if it's new, if it's not around, or if it's not as prominent in 97, which I don't really know whether or not that's true. I'm just taking your word, Adam, but.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, be careful, be careful.
3: <laughs> assuming that Adam is right, then it makes sense when there's a new emerging conversation about anything. its It's fuzzy. There's an inherent fuzziness to it that, I think serves as a ground of creativity. And when that conversation starts to develop, it creates or it forms harder boundaries and more concrete language to speak about the phenomenon that uh, we're talking about. So that makes sense to me. I think it's just that like uh, watching or thinking about contact in the year 2020, maybe... It just, it feels uh, maybe lacking in a way,
0: which is... It feels like sinister billionaires have taken over.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe that's what it is. (laughs) Although, I just, like, even though I'm sort of slapping contact around now a little bit with Adam, I still just want to repeat (laughs) that I do really love the film. I
2: personally (laughs) feel inspired by it. Good. Well, so based on the things that you and Adam are saying, you know, when we look at these questions that Rachel put together, the last question she has is, have there been any impacts this movie made? And could we argue then that you, so Adam, you're saying that some of the things, you know, when the book came out and the film came out, that there have not been at the time, decades of scholars in this field of science and religion. So could we, is there any argument to be made that did this, influence or impact that field oh i i think without a doubt so in what ways so um
0: so i'll I'll put it this way right like um if you're if if we're thinking about like religion and science or theology and science is like a distinct academic field right? right you can probably trace that Kendra can, can argue with me if she thinks that we would trace it somewhere different, right? But like, on the one hand, Gladly. it's it's a, con-
2: <laughs> it's
0: a continuing conversation. Fight, 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 That's been going on. But it's like a sort of like modern academic field, right? Like I think Ian Barber's Gifford lectures are sort of a seminal moment of like making this thing. I'll, I'll put it this way. Money starts to coalesce hmm. after those Gifford lectures in terms of funding. This is a sort of like Research area, right? So, as Carl Sagan is on television advocating in a certain sense a sort of noma position, right? Mm-hmm. You know,
1: you start playing that term for folks, and definitely not for me, who totally knows what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, right, that, that science and religion are independent areas that they're not overlapping magisteria. That if science stays over here and its nice little sandbox and does its thing well. Woohoo! Everything's good, and if religion just stays over here in its nice little sandbox and does things well, woohoo! Everybody's happy. Better than when we think that these two things, when we think about these fields of science and religion, talking about the same thing and conflicting. Hmm. So this is Noma in a thirty-second nutshell. Um, moving beyond those models of independence, right, is 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 a big deal for for Barber and some other folks that he's he's drawing on that have been doing this philosophically, right? But you see like the emergence of this as an area of study in the American Academy of Religion in the 90s, right? You see the first major centers dedicated to studying science and religion being put in place in the 80s, right? Chairs are being established at universities in the early to mid 90s. All of that is overlapping with the publication of Contact as a book Mm -hmm. and its release as a movie. And that's where I would say, like, absolutely, you have to point to this as the way in which public conversation about religion and science is had outside of the academy during this period right. of time. And it's only just becoming something that's a quote unquote proper sort of academic field, producing scholars who study specifically that. It's not just people getting degrees in. systematic theology anymore who happen to be interested in science, right? There are people who are actually coming out like Kendra with degrees that are focused on the intersection of these two areas.
1: There are still very few institutions that have specific programs about that intersection, and most places you still kind of have to create your own sort of setup, unfortunately.
3: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I'll probably not get a job for a while. (laughs) you will get a
1: job,
0: Kendra. People are listening.
2: They are going to <laughs> ah, Hey, Kendra. We if, need you, Kendra. Uh, if mm-hmm. I can get Adam to help me figure out a way to get tons of money to develop that center here at UNC Charlotte, which I keep saying, "Hey Adam, can we talk more so it's going to have to happen?" Then then when I when I raise millions and millions of dollars, I'll hire you, okay? Perfect. I can't wait. Okay. All right. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah,
1: don't if wait. You need a communications
2: expert. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, when we make our millions, I will hire everybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna change the world.
1: <laughs> I, somebody's gotta do it and, yes. and right. we need a billionaire is what we need. Exactly. Right? Nothing happens without a billionaire. Exactly.
3: <laughs> Changing the world one starfish at a time.
1: <laughs> one Sorry, dead starfish I couldn't help at it. a time. <laughs> Rachel is always with us in spirit, even when she's not here. Right. <laughs> <This is dry. laughs> the other thing that contact did to uh to change popular culture was it was pretty much one of the first if not the only movie that was made to intentionally be scientifically either accurate or plausible Un- and not really a movie made specifically by physicists to be true until interstellar yeah oh, who yeah. is Carl Sagan's good buddy oh. Kip Thorne did that's and a great another film. teaser for future episode when we're gonna. That's right. Oh man, it's so good.
2: And I know we're getting near the end of our time, but I think it, I would love to just quickly address her testifying testimony scene near the end of the movie. Yeah, because I think that's such a profound scene on the entire movie and the messaging there, and on her. Wait, character, if this is about a
3: profound. Uh, thing that you're going to say? Can I add one more not profound thing? Sure. I just wanted to add that I, with regards to the question of like how this film impacted future conversations about science and religion, um, I don't know to what scale this would be true, but it's true that uh, conversations about intelligent design in public schools were really salient in the um, 80s and 90s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But especially the 80s, I think, is when it first was becoming really prominent. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that perhaps one of the reasons I sort of feel a, a knee-jerk reaction of hesitation to the film is that what I know about some Christian groups trying to use intelligent design as a way to sneak creationism into schools makes me skeptical of smacks of intelligent design and I see that in contact, uh, even though I think that might be just another way that I impose something onto the film that's not intended to be there. So that's just another another thing I would add is that these, these two things, the film contact and intelligent design controversies are mm-hmm. happening around the same time as well.
1: Yeah. And there point. are people writing algorithms today to search through things like the digits of pi for just that very thing that she brought up. And inspired in by that in the book, right. um, there are people who are proponents of intelligent design who are trying to do that thing today in order to prove that God is real. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I so know yeah, that. sorry,
3: Ian. I, Which, I'm sorry to add no, no, that. Okay. Have,
1: have any of you read Breakfast of Champions? Kurt Vonnegut?
0: No. Oh, it's been a long time.
1: I love Kurt Vonnegut. In all of his books, he has this recurring character Kilgore Trout who is a novelist, who's like a failed novelist and that he kind of writes himself into. And in in this book, he writes himself into the ending of the book, like he as the author character enters into the book and like accosts Kilgore Trout. And chases him down in his car and throws him in the back seat and explains to him, I am your creator, I am I am a novelist and you're in my book, and I love you and you are my child and I want what's best for you and I'm going to give you a Nobel Prize and I'm going to give you this, that, and the other, and do you have any questions for me? And just in Vonnegut's way of just being just wonderfully flippant and irreverent. and. <laughs> you know, he's got, he's like sending him to the Taj Mahal and to the surface of the sun. And then over here and over there and over here and over there. And Kilgore trout's like having a stroke at this point. And he, he can't say anything. And, and Kurt Vonnegut's character is like, I love you. And, I've made your life miserable, and I want to set you free. And that's my gift to you for my 50th birthday, is I'm setting you free. And then he does cartwheels out into the distance and va- evaporates back into his author's chair. And Kilgore Trout is just like, what is what is what is happening? I, I don't understand anything about, about life. And that, by the way, is my favorite ending in which like we find a mark of the divine in, in something like it's, it's not this, it, this profound thumbprint or something like an, an artist's signature at the bottom of creation. It's just this manic, novelist that jumps in and is like, I love you! Yeah! Nobel Prize! You're free! Go! I promise I'm not going to write about you anymore! And Can then that he just cartwheels on or two <laughs> into oblivion and it's the best and I love it. And Kurt Vonnegut is what I used to read in seminary in the summers to give myself some untheology time and found a lot of good theology in there. But.
0: <laughs> I did Grover was going to make like a special appearance on the show.
2: Yeah, you need to keep that in there for, yeah, for the I love
1: Grover. I'm sorry. Ian had one more point about about the final scene. Maybe this is the point where I'll add some, like, nice musical transition here that will fade in right now so that when we go to Ian, then it won't be so drastic. And um, here we go.
2: (laughs) Well, so I love the... (laughs) (laughs) I love how in that time where she's testifying near the end so she's come back from the trip and you know we've learned that she is saying that she was gone eighteen hours and that you know people who witnessed it saw it drop straight through they don't believe her blah 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 and she's trying to have to defend her conclusions and she's recognizing I need to pull up the some of the quotes that I've got here but she's recognizing the fact that they ask her to, you know, to be able to, you know, um, uh, kits. Uh, the the former Secretary of Defense is, you know, asking, are you familiar with the scientific precept known as Occam's Razor and about the, you know, the simplest explanation is the most likely explanation. This is after he talked about how this was all just a big fake and that was a hoax by the billionaire Adam, your billionaire, and as she. Is trying to acknowledge the fact that, yes, it has to be the simplest explanation, blah. blah, blah. one of the, the person in charge of the whole thing kind of says that you come to us with no evidence and that you expect us to accept all, your testimony on faith. <laughs> right. Which it really that single moment just gets at the whole idea of what she's been battling with this entire film is that she then acknowledges that i found this fascinating that as a scientist she must concede that it's possible the trip didn't happen because mm. she has to have evidence and so you then see the main character kind of questioner kits going after her, saying that you need you know you admit that this could not have happened as a scientist and so you need to withdraw your testimony and just screaming at her and why won't you do it and that's when she says that I can't, I experienced something Hmm. so profound that I cannot take it away. And I wish people could have had this experience. Right. And then, and I know there's a bunch of different quotes. I'm not including, but I find that you could see in that one scene, the turmoil that she's going through of recognizing the fact that this experience she had has changed who she is fundamentally. And then, Step you know, fast forward maybe a minute or two, you see her after she got in the car, and Palmer's with her, and the press is asking her, "What do you believe? What do you believe?" And and his quote I thought was outstanding. He said, "You know, as a person of faith, I'm bound by a different covenant than Dr. Arroway, but our goal is one and the same: the pursuit of truth. I, for one, believe her," and it mm-hmm. shows her to reach out and just and so to me, it's like it flies in that whole idea of science and faith are forever in conflict or that there has to be a conflict and that no, there doesn't have to be. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, we're all nodding.
2: Mm-hmm. No one like, can I, not. Not. Yes,
0: we're all yeah.
2: nodding. I love to say that my colleagues are nodded and, and sort of silently clapping for my amazingness right there. We
1: were nodding and looking pensive trying to think of a response, I think.
2: It's, yeah. I took your breaths away.
1: We don't want to sound less intelligent than that and it's it's it was brilliant so it's gonna be hard. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Should have sent a poet.
0: I so I I think what's interesting to me about that like uh that closing scene, right? In light of what we've sort of talked about. So Carl Sagan consulted on the movie, didn't he?
2: Yeah. Okay. Because he died while filming.
0: I, I mean so one of the things that's interesting to me about this is how different these sort of ending monologues are for Ellie, right? And and there's a little party that wonders like, does this sort of reflect a a certain level of change and development and, and thinking on Sagan's part um, in terms of what he wanted, that ending, how he wanted to communicate what the, what the point of this was, right? Because I do feel like that scene in the movie is essential to wrapping up all of the dramatic tension, right? Like, like if you don't have that, it just sort of hangs and mm. you leave it totally open for people to interpret however they want. But he gives this, like, there's this glimpse in that moment of a sort of way forward that is, it's, I don't know, now I'm sort of spitballing, but feels really interesting to me in light of how different it is from the end of the book. And maybe in a really important way for sort of talking about both the legacy of this film, but also like Sagan's legacy Cause for me at least, contact is the epitome of Sagan's legacy for religion and science dialogue. Mm. I mean, he does a lot of other things. He's immensely important. I think people who are older than me would probably point to like Sagan hosting Cosmos on public television as like the thing that's most important. But like to me, this movie is the expression of what he wanted to leave people with. And I, I take that seriously in terms of how important it still needs to be in our consciousness
1: as folks who sort of work on these topics a lot. This has been episode 31 of the down the wormhole podcast. Thanks for being on this journey with us. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. And you can also find links to articles and further reading in the show notes or at our website at downthewormhole.com. We are just getting started on this movie mini-series and we hope that you will take this opportunity to check out some of our favorites while you're trapped inside, wherever you are, hopefully at home. Next week, Kender convinces us all that 2001 A Space Odyssey is worth another look. After that, Adam helps us to think about how the magical realism of Pan's Labyrinth encourages us to reimagine and re-enchant the world, then I will be using Interstellar, as an example of a scientific eschatology and how despite its sophistication it still remains true to the themes of the ancient apocalyptic literature it's a lot of jargon it's it's a movie about the end of the world and it's 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 pretty good rachel will close us out um but i honestly have no idea what movie she's choosing you will have to wait and see just like me And hey, I hope that wherever you are, you also have good friends who make ridiculously generous promises that are forever captured on podcast audio and totally constitute a legally binding agreement. Right, Ian?
2: Yeah, when we make our millions, I will hire everybody. (laughs) We're going to change the world.